Welcome to the third episode of Volume 2 of the African Mobilities Podcast, where Emmanuel Admasu and I will discuss Emmanuel's ongoing research project to markets that is concerned with connecting colonial logics, diasporic conditions, and constructed identities of urban marketplaces in East Africa. Emmanuel Admasu is an architect and founding partner of art and architectural practice at World. He's also an associate professor at the Rhode Island School of Design and Architecture. And he design, teaching and research practices operate at the intersection of design theory, spatial justice, contemporary art, post-colonial theory and critical theory. And I am Mpo Madziba, curator of African mobilities. Emmanuel, thanks so much for agreeing to do this podcast. I want to talk about Mercato, which is a large open-air marketplace established as part of an attempt to centralize political and economic activities shortly after the city of Addis Ababa was settled in the late 19th century. Could you tell me a little bit about the history of Mercato and why you chose Mercato as your case study? The first central marketplace of Ethiopia was actually called Arada. And it was established after Empress I II and Emperor Menelik established Addis Ababa mm-hmm. as the capital. And it was this large open field at the foot of the hill, right below the royal compound. And from everything seen and read, it was a fascinating cosmopolitan condition where merchants and farmers from basically every part of the country came to the capital, uh, which is, of course, tactically positioned in the center of the country to trade and interact with one another. There are more than 80 different languages spoken in Ethiopia. And as you can imagine, people were speaking most of those languages in the fields of Arada. Therefore, this ever-shifting zoning system of the Terra, where merchants organize themselves based on goods they sell, was a very intuitive way uh, to deal with the language barrier and also to maximize uh, interaction and haggling by basically establishing proximity between similar goods. So even the smaller neighborhood markets in Addis today continue to operate in a very similar fashion. But it's also important to note that Arada was established shortly after the first Italo-Ethiopian War, uh, where Ethiopians defeated the colonial army, uh, basically preserving independence. Uh, So there was an excitement uh, to actively engage in the construction of a prideful uh, nation state. And uh, Arada is kind of emblematic of that condition. Very often when we talk about African urban spaces, the colonial master plan, the colonial imaginary is the thing that kind of sets everything in motion and that produces all kinds of difficulties. And I think that your work on Mercato points to something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Mercato is an interesting case study for me, primarily because the Italians had certain ambitions. They basically drew up a master plan and built a few buildings, but they weren't really able to shape the city. So there's kind of an outline of a colonial ambition that would eventually be appropriated by Ethiopians. So when you go to Mercato, you begin to read the Italian grid and the master plan but the way it is being occupied and used is is very similar to the initial uh, open-air marketplace, Arada. It's almost completely uh, <laughs> neglecting uh, the, the boundaries that were established by the Italians. That, that, in a way, brings me to a discussion about the tapestry that you produced for our show in Munich in 2018, where you produced a tapestry that was huge. It's 2.7 by 4.3 meters um, in dimension. And it would appear that your work 
uh, works very hard at connecting colonial logics, urban marketplaces, which are themselves a tapestry, right? Um, and I was wondering if you can speak a bit more about tapestry and timescapes for African mobilities and how this relates to your own understanding of, of African urban spaces. So why tapestry and how does that translate into the kind of thinking that you are beginning to develop for um, your other market projects? Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the main reasons uh, why we chose to produce uh, tapestry, it came from a rejection of the Western construction of linear time. And also this myth that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> the myth of linear progression uh, or the assumption that the future is always going to be better than the present or the past. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we were very much interested in a nonlinear conception of time. And if you look at a lot of the rituals in Ethiopian culture, whether they're associated with religion or not, there's a certain commitment to repetition and patterns that are in conversation with the past. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I mean, uh, my, my father passed away about four years ago, but he's still a very important presence in my life. So it is clear that uh, the cyclical understanding of time can be found also in multiple cultures throughout the continent. Um, and, and it really operates very differently from this linear conception of time. So when we started developing the tapestry for the African Mobilities Exhibition, we really wanted to conceptualize the marketplace um, as a timescape that juxtaposes multiple timeframes and material conditions. And this idea of the tapestry as a timescape really extended to the drawings that we would eventually produce for, produce for the two markets exhibition as well. Um, and, and in that case, we were drawing specific blocks within Mercato and Carico as containers of nonlinear time. And as you, as you probably know here in the Western context, uh, this issue of linear time is creating uh, an existential crisis. Uh, people are refusing to accept how the past continues to prefigure our present. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the reckoning that is happening in the U.S. right now is a reckoning with a past that people in dominant culture have consistently tried to erase. So uh, the tapestry um, or this idea of a timescape becomes a way to hack uh, or destabilize the conventional architectural drawing, which typically operates as a projective device. And I'm wondering, in what ways does Mercato suggest that architecture can't be absolute? And how does this relate to the question of immeasurability? Um, a lot of the interests with immeasurability are fairly recent, and that's kind of tied to research we're doing uh, in Atlanta, Atlanta Georgia. Mm -hmm. But um, the... The, the, the initial question about uh, how architecture can never be absolute within these conditions, to me, is really tied to uh, the preservation of a certain cultural sensibility. So there, there is this idea that uh, you can occupy a space any way you want, no matter what uh, architectural element or urban element uh, might be positioned in front of you. So there, there is always... Uh, a kind of um, a refusal to accept the borderization of space mm -hmm. that I think you can see uh, within spaces like Mercato and to a certain extent even Carioco. So I, that's what's really fascinating about those spaces to me is that 
the architecture is always produced in conversation with the ways in which uh, the merchants occupy the space. I'm going to invite you to maybe tell us a little bit more about your two markets project, um, where you basically talk about how these two markets offer fragmented portals into two sub-Saharan marketplaces in Dar es Salaam and in Addis. In what ways are these markets similar and which ways are they different? Yeah, so the two mar- uh, with two markets, we decided to, uh, as I was saying earlier, draw each block as a materialization of a particular political ambition by a specific regime. Uh, so whether it was the egalitarian ambitions of Julius Nerere with the Arusha Declaration and Karyko, or the military junta uh, kind of pseudo-Marxist ambitions uh, of the Derg regime in Mercato. Uh, there are specific spatial conditions that were uh, either built to represent those ambitions or retrofitted to gain new meaning. Mm-hmm. So uh, the marketplace really represents the contradiction between the monumentality and hypervisibility that is required um, by the state to provide some sort of evidence of its political agenda, mm-hmm. along with the opacity and concealment exercised by the residents and merchants that live and work in these spaces. Um, For example, there are uh, special codes and even uh, currencies that are used uh, between merchants and Mercato that could never be accessed or understood by outsiders. Uh, And the fact that major aspects of uh, the social and spatial fabric in these marketplaces remain concealed from outsiders makes them somewhat uh, makes them liberating alternatives, uh, or as you, as you would put it, prototypes for, in a way, resisting a world where almost every aspect of our daily lives is being surveilled uh, by uh, electronic devices. The, the question of surveillance ties into the question of calculability and measurability as well. And um, when you were talking a little bit earlier about Mercato, you were talking about Terra as a system. And I'm yep. also- thinking about how you talk about the market um, and how the market is operated as a continuous field, which you describe as an ever-shifting zoning system, um, Mm -hmm. where the merchant sits in rows and um, these rows are arranged according to the goods that they sell, and how this kind of spatial arrangement basically allows for a more flexible reading um, that a a Cartesian um, understanding of space, a Cartesian understanding of boundaries doesn't allow. And you also describe this as a kind of um, undeniably endo- endogenous logic. What does that mean? <laughs> Word. <laughs> what do you mean by endogenous logic um, of the markets? And why And why? Why should this matter? Yeah, I mean, again, to me, the, the endogenous logic can be seen, for example, on the concrete slabs of the new malls in Mercato. Because the, those concrete slabs operate in a very similar manner to the open fields of Arada. And I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm fascinated uh, with. Uh, there, there's a certain ambition to transform society through some intervention of modern architecture. Mm-hmm. But that society always represents itself or, let's say, um, ends up surprising those of us who are architects because... The, the buildings end up gaining completely new meaning and they end up being occupied in ways that previous environments were occupied in that territory. Um, so that's kind of what I was trying to get at with the endogenous logic. I mean, I, I consistently see Arada in Mercato um, and, and I just don't really know how to, to grapple with that outside of saying 
there are certain sensibilities that are transferred from generation to generation. So what does that mean for you as an architect? I mean, um, we're both trained as architects and we have a very particular kind of education. Um, and in some ways it produces a crisis, not for Arada or Mercato, but in terms of like the kind of tools that we have available to us in, in accounting for these shifting systems, these dynamic ways of social spatial organization. Um, so I'm wondering how, how else you've explored this and how this, this complexity that you're encountering in African market spaces and specifically in Mercato um, opens up other ways to think about representation. Biggest enemy is the blank sheet of paper um, when it comes to architectural representation. And I think that's very much tied to uh, a colonial logic that assumes that there's nothing there on the ground. Mm. And we as architects are bringing something mm. uh, valuable to that space. So a lot of my, my ambition, both in design and research, is really trying to find a way to draw the layers of history that came before my arrival, uh, or let's say the arrival of any architect, right? And I think we just need to learn uh, or develop means of representation that are about excavation uh, before we start thinking about projection. And uh, to me, that, that really opens up the discipline to potentially create uh, uh, or let's say provide corrections of, of histories but also uh, provide a more robust vision for the future. You have this complex shift between like, you know, being on one side of the Atlantic and then being on the Indian Ocean as well. And I'm wondering what this move back and forward in your own thinking produces in terms of your own diasporic imagination and the way that you engage with this thing called diasporic condition. Because in the same way that East African cities are not this kind of homogenous thing, right? That What's happening in Dar is not what's happening in Addis. The diaspora condition itself is something that is quite complex and varied and different. And I would like you to speak a little bit about, or maybe a lot, it's really up to you. Um, I'd like you to speak about um, how the diaspora condition, as you understand it, has informed your own thinking um, and creating from afar, and how this too influences your pedagogy. The most direct answer to that is the fact that I grew up in Addis uh, until I was 14 years old. Uh, so my most formative years uh, uh, happened in Addis, uh, in Ethiopia. And then I moved uh, from ninth grade onwards uh, to the U.S., uh, specifically a suburb uh, right outside of Atlanta, Georgia. So I think... Just that shift, as you can imagine, was a very difficult shift to to make. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it created, uh, at least uh, I'm, I'm recently beginning to think that it's created the situation where I feel like I'm always existing in multiple realms. So there there is always a feeling that I am somehow um, an Ethiopian in the U.S. Uh, or... Uh, an American in Ethiopia. So I think that that contradiction has been somewhat generative, especially for, for the design practice. And, and my design practice is also in collaboration with Jen Wood, who is Australian. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there, is, there are multiple versions of the diaspora condition that we're constantly negotiating with. And just to kind of give you an example, uh, recently we uh, have um, 
been working on a project that will be part of an upcoming exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art. And uh, it was 10 different architects basically uh, analyzing 10 different cities. And the city that we're analyzing is Atlanta, Georgia. And very early on, I realized that there is no way for me to really talk about Atlanta without talking about Addis. How is that? Because I'm really interested in the echoes between those two cities and also in conceptualizing Blackness through movement and displacement, both here and on the continent. When I arrived, I was part of a prominent Ethiopian community in Atlanta, but I was also facilitated by the rich history of the city as an epicenter for Black culture and politics. And this makes it a really welcoming place for African immigrants, but it also helps us establish a clear and explicit connection to the Black Atlantic. Uh, when you understand Atlanta as a city that was basically um, established as a terminus, uh, extending train lines from the port of Savannah. So there is that kind of echo between the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the African continent, and uh, the port of Savannah that kind of produces the city of Atlanta. In terms of your own practice, though, I mean, you say that it's been generative, but in what ways is it generative? Because I'm basically, when we're doing projects like this, like the Atlanta uh, analysis, there is the whole project dealing with notions of immeasurability. And it's really uh, trying to understand how everyday ordinary spaces of Black Atlantans are always trying to operate outside of the logics of architecture, which is a discipline mm -hmm. that has been uh, designed to make space measurable and for the most part, uh, exploitable. Um, and we're extending that analysis over to uh, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, uh, which is kind of a planetary scale scar. Uh, and it is a scar that kind of prefigures a global black aesthetic. So for me, uh, it's very difficult to kind of focus on the U.S. without addressing my relationship with the continent of Africa. So that's why it's been extremely generative, because even when we're doing projects here in the U.S., there, there is a certain understanding of spatial conditions in Ethiopia or spatial conditions in Tanzania, or in my partner's case, spatial conditions in Australia that always come into play as we begin the design work or the research work on these projects. So, um, yeah, and, and, and I think these are spaces that typically don't qualify as architecture with a capital A, mm -hmm. as they are part of the ordinary landscape of American cities, at least the spaces that we're looking at in Atlanta. And I'm talking about strip malls, uh, highway overpasses, cul-de-sacs, et cetera. And um, so, yeah, there, there are moments where the ordinary begins to approach the surreal or even the sublime. Uh, and um, for example, I'm talking about um, situations where a picnic turns into a traffic jam and then becomes a cultural phenomenon, which, is, uh, which was the case with uh, Freaknik uh, in Atlanta, which is a yearly event where students from historically black colleges gathered in Atlanta um, and it became this kind of massive thing that lasted more than a decade where people gather for a year and create this massive traffic jam slash party. And to me, that is a measurability. Um, this this, this uh, 
sensibility to reinterpret the highway as a potential space for cultural production, you know? Because mm-hmm. the, the highway is always understood as this space that kind of breaks cities apart and usually disenfranchises Black people. But it could also be reinterpreted as a space for Black empowerment. Figure of the hacker, right? That that in order to be able to to understand and think creatively about these spaces, you have to think of yourself as a hacker, but also the ways in which Black life is a subversion of these kind of Euclidean logics and uh, settler colonial logics to a certain degree, uh, which has been a kind of ongoing conversation in in various in various podcasts where Abdul Malik Simone kind of talks about the ensemble, the compositional and improvisation as a way of thinking about black life in urban space or black studies as, as a framework for thinking about urban space in ways that are not intent on settling, on containment, and how there's always this kind of move towards uh, transitoriness, towards mobility, towards assembling social relations. So I think that this is, this is a very, very interesting and important shift and, uh, uh, and a repositioning of how uh, a serious taking African space seriously radically transforms the way we can begin to think about our spatial futures. So I want to thank you again, Emmanuel, for making time available to talk about mobilities. Only one in many, 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 many other conversations that we will continue to have in the years to come. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure. podcast series was made possible with the support of the Goethe Institute in partnership with the School of Architecture and Planning and the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witwatersrand as well as the Andrew Mellon Foundation. 